We're getting to the end of Judges, so I will, I will share where we're headed. I don't always, always do that, but we have two weeks in between this end of this series and the next one. And in those two weeks, we're going to take um, quick time and just talk about generosity. It's not because we need your money. Very often churches talk about money when they need it. Um, we don't need your money. God does. No, God doesn't need your money like, either. He's totally fine. Uh, so wanted to take over the course of months, really a chunk of this year, we've just recognized conversations about finance are good to have. Personal finance, how do we handle it? What is stewardship? And so we're just taking two weeks to do that as we bridge to the fall series, which is on the one another's of Scripture. I would encourage you to consider a community group as we get into that, because the community group will be going through some specific material that's a part of how we are pursuing care together. And right now we have three groups slated for the fall, and two of them are already gigantic, and one of them might be. So, you know, we might need some help here. Be ready. If you're a member here and just go, yeah, we should probably take that on because, I mean, I think two of our groups are plus 15 if you just count the adults in it. So that's a lot. Um, But the point is to see what God can, what does scripture ask of a Christian? I think we, we erroneously sometimes assume that the scripture asks like the super Christians to be one kind of thing and then like the normies, they just get to do whatever. And a lot of scripture expects Christ-like behavior out of all of us, Christ-like care out of all of us. It's not just like, well, I can be a jerk, but my pastors can't. No, we can be jerks too. <laughs> so we'll be going through uh, some key one another's of Scripture throughout the fall, and there's curriculum that we're using along with it, which is a part of our big emphasis as a church on how do we better care for one another, both in our community groups, as elders, and how we coach and follow up and disciple and teach and train so that we're allowing the Scriptures to transform us, challenge us, and convict us of maybe idolatry in ways that we're living. And so that's what we're heading into. So we're finishing Judges this week. Three more chapters, the ugliest part. So we'll start with this. Uh, Dad's in the room. How many of you, by show of hands, this is confession time. Willie, use your left arm. Yeah, John's already in. By show of hands, how many of you at some point in time in your dad or husband life have uttered this phrase, what were you thinking? Yeah. What were you thinking? Uh, Gary, you ever said that to an employee? Maybe? Something like it? Yeah. What was on your mind then? What went through your mind? How could you possibly have? Right? What were you thinking? For the kids in the room who have heard dad say that before, I apologize on behalf of fathers worldwide. I mean, we say that in anger, but the honest, the honest answer in general is, I wasn't. I wasn't thinking. And when dad barks that out, he's not thinking. Right? It's just like, like there's, there's, no, there's no edification going on when you bark at your child, what are you thinking? That's why scripture says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. It doesn't say that to moms. You know why? Because in general, moms don't. They don't exasperate. Dads exasperate. In general, I see some eyes. In general, moms don't. Age of the kids, notwithstanding. 
But we, we, it's like, it, I don't know what kind of answer we, were, we expect to get when we say, what were you thinking? Because it's usually said in anger, in a moment of tension, and we already know the answer, which was, that was a bad decision. So rather than, than train and teach the heart of a child, we just want to get a few licks in emotionally. We just go, oh, I, want, I want you to feel bad for what you did. And that isn't the Lord's response toward us. The what were you thinking response. But when you pursue a life, because we know there's a serious problem with just doing what you think is right. If we pursue a life of just pursuing the things that we think are correct, we run into issues, don't we? Where you go, well, I thought it was a good idea. A lot of your life is made by your own decisions. You might like to veil them in like, but I go to church, so it's okay. But a lot of people don't actually consult the Lord about their life. They just kind of live their life and hope the Lord just blesses whatever they do. It's a backwards way of living. The book of Judges has taught us up to and through today that that's, that's going to get you all kinds of backwards. We have watched the decline of a nation. We have watched the corruption of leadership. We have watched the Israelites attack themselves because of their anger and their sin. We've watched judges mislead. We've watched, them, we've watched their misdeeds. We have just seen time and time again people doing what they thought was right. And we have seen in all of those things God's faithfulness towards his people, even in the midst of an incredible amount of sin, disobedience, and just absolute terror. Like I, can't, I cannot overstate how ugly Judges 17 through 21 are. They're hideous, they're evil, they're uncomfortable, and yet here we are. Jesse uh, from Creek's End preached last week, and we actually, he and I, we didn't like, collaborate over our, our, the way we're going to organize our material, but we're actually organizing it in a similar way, because you're seeing the fruit of pursuing what you want. Pursuing your own end, pursuing your own ideas, your own ideals, and what you think is right. So the question we're going to ask today is this. What are the results of pursuing a life where you do only what you think is right? Where you do only what you think is the right thing to do? Now we know the phrase that we'll see repeated throughout the back end of Judges here, which is at that days there were no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's like the episode of Parks and Rec where Ron Swanson's doing something he shouldn't and he hands a piece of paper to somebody and the piece of paper just says, I have a permit. That's all it says. You know, or I can do what I want. And we use that language, don't we, even culturally. You can do what you want. We don't think about just the, the evil that that can produce when we just tell somebody they can do what they want because we have an underestimation of the wickedness of the human heart. We have an underestimation of what can actually happen when people do what they want. And so, Judges 19 through 21. We've seen these judges. We've seen a story. We're seeing a story about a Levite previously. Now we're going to see another. The difference between 19 through 21 as compared to 17 and 18 is that everybody's anonymous. It's almost like the anonymity of the characters makes it relatable to anybody. This doesn't have to be any one person, because it's very easy to go, oh, well, that was them, not me. But the anonymity of who's doing what actually demonstrates that this is a systemic problem 
in the nation. Nobody's called by name. <clears throat> it's easy to see a judge and go, well, I'm not like that. I'm not a judge. I'm not a leader. But these are just the people. So we'll see three disregards or three, three problems that we will get into as we go through this. And I just want to say to the parents in the room, there are some really... A really ugly sin happening in Judges 19 through 21. And I'm not going to just name it. I think at times the scriptures don't name it either. They just, they don't, they don't bring your mind all the way there. So I'm not going to say it to that same degree because you also have to go have lunch with your children. And um, I don't need a medal with that. So you can connect the dots. Here's the first thing that we see. 19, 20, and 21, that's where we'll be. The first problem that begins to happen here is that there's a disregard for those you should care for. Just a blatant disregard of those you should care for. That's the first problem that we see, a disregard of those you should care for. The story, as your scriptures might say, if you have the kind of one that has paragraphs, a Levite, a priestly leader, and his concubine, a non-wife. And so... The story begins by a concubine who leaves a Levite and goes back to dad's house, and the Levite goes to get her. As uh, ancient Near Eastern hospitality would demonstrate, there's a lot of, you should stay another night, and you should stay another night, and you should stay another night, and he does. That is very non-American of us uh, to, no, I have a schedule, and we're going to get out of here. But ancient Near Eastern hospitality is very much, you you might be in it to win it. Like, you might not be going anywhere. Doesn't, doesn't matter if you didn't bring a suitcase, like, you're staying. And so father-in-law-ish is asking his son-in-law-ish to stay. He stays, he stays, he stays, he stays, he stays. And then, starting in verse 10, he doesn't. The man would not stay the night, 19.10. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. It's not Jerusalem yet, but the, the, the writer is putting in there so you know where Jebus is. Because they'd be like, where's Jebus? It's Jerusalem. He had a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. People that weren't driven out originally in the beginning of Judges. His master said, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he, rose, and he said to his young man, come and let us draw near to one of the places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. You see the thing, we're not going to go stay with not our people, we're going to stay with our people because there should be from the law a demonstration of hospitality that Israelites give to one another. But as the scene gets set, it gets worse. Verse 14, they're looking for hospitality and they find none. This is ominous, bum, 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 right? Like, you know the scene. You're at the saloon, and like somebody walks out, no one's where they should be, and so you're trying to figure out why there's no one there, and you know it's not good. This is how this is getting set up, verse 14. So they passed and went on their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, and they turned aside there to go spend the night in Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. It doesn't seem like a big detail or it's like, like, like we kind of go, okay, yeah, of course, you get a hotel. 
No, the, the way the Israelites operated was on the hospitality that they would show to one another. And God had even said, not just to one another, but to foreigners, because he goes, because you were foreigners in Egypt, you know what it's like to be, so you should demonstrate extraordinary kindness to anyone sojourning in your land who's seeking God. And yet, what do they do? But they get into the town square, and it's just nothing. And you start to wonder what's going to happen. Who's going to show up? Well, a man finds them and says, you stay with me. Don't stay here. You stay with me. It's like he knows something. He knows something. Don't stay, don't stay here in the square. You just stay with me tonight. And they do what hospitality would have for them. They eat and they drink and they're merry. And as they were making their hearts merry, remember it's a Levite, it's his concubine, it's this man, he has a daughter. So they're just having a good time. The men of the city, worthless fellows, we've seen that phrase multiple times in Judges. People get bad friends. Worthless fellows surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know them, which is euphemistic language that the Old Testament will use for physical relations, that we may know them. And the master of the house went out to them and said, No, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Now, we've stopped the slides right there on the screen. But what this man then does is he makes a trade. He says, here's my daughter, and here's his concubine. Have them instead. And so they're shut out for the night. And the man, the Levite, just doesn't seem to care. He seems disinterested in what has gone on. Remember, this is all pitched and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sometimes we read this and we go, so is God approving? Is God disapproving? Now, why did God not stop it? They had gone so far astray that they were seeing the world in reverse. Evil had become good, and good had become evil, and disobedience had become obedience. That's, it's not that we've talked before in series where we have this idea of God giving over. If this is where you are going to be, then you're going to experience the full consequences of your sin if that's really how this is going to go. And so... You get to verse 27 again, not behind you. The master rose up, and when he opened the doors, there was a concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And look at this coarse, heartless language. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. So he puts her on a donkey. Either she was dead then or she died on the way. And he gets back home. And he dismembers her and sends her to every tribe as if this is a good thing. This is like seven. Like this is what's going on. This is not good. Sending to every tribe to try and stir up hostility, make people angry, 
with the people of Gibeah, which is a town in Benjamin. And so he's trying to stir up hostilities and anger against his own people. And the people gather and they say, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day of the people of Israel that they came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel and speak. They all gather and they try to figure out what's going on. But they're gathering in anger about the sin and sinful condition of another man and what had gone on. They're just not thinking straight. So that first thing, a disregard for those you should care for, that first idea Husbands are no longer husbands. Fathers are no longer fathers. They're just places and people who are still just doing what they want. Now, we might go, I would never do that. I would would never do that. Well, praise God, you would never do that. But I bet every man in this room has had callous disregard for his wife or for his children. Callous disregard at some point in time. Or you've said something, spoken something, done something. You've said, what were you thinking? you said, I don't care how you feel. you said, why did you do it that way? There you go again. You've done something where your heart has not been tender to the Lord, but hardened by your own flesh and have demonstrated a lack of servant-hearted, God-centered care for those who need it. Now, we see the multiplication of that sin because the whole people of Gibeah didn't care about others. They didn't offer hospitality to those who were sojourning in their town who needed a place to stay for the night. When they did find a place to stay, they just tried to overtake them. Blatant disregard. For those you should care for, your own people and your own family. And then even then, after it all goes, what do we have? But we have a situation where the Levite tries to make himself look good. By being like, look what they did. Look what they did. Look what they accomplished. That's the the second thing that begins to happen in chapter 20 is you have that first thing, a disregard for those who need help. The second is there's an exchange that's made, and you're no longer fighting an enemy, but you're fighting your own people. Remember how the book began. It's very important that we recognize the book began driving out an enemy. But it started very quickly to go, but they did not drive out. But they did not drive out. But they did not drive out. That happens time and time and time and time again. It's like all these partial obediences or direct disobediences. But they did not, but they did not, but they did not. And you look at verse 1 of chapter 20. This is part of what was um, in the passage that was read, chapter 20, part of what was read. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba. That gives the whole range of the nation. From Dan to Beersheba. Including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord. Interesting that this one man language does not show up all that often in the book of Judges. 
And some of the times it shows up most prominently is when they gather as one man to kill their own people. They're unified about the wrong thing. Oh, man. I mean, I don't want to make too many parallels to church, but that's so often the case. Right? Like, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and if you, like, like, let's hate somebody together. This is the pettiness that shows up in every kind of middle school and high school relationship. Where it's like, we hate you. Why? Not because, because they hate you. And if they hate you, I, I hate you too. And so rather than actually go to what God had put before them, which is to drive the people out, they go, you know what, let's just kill, let's just kill the people of Gibeah. That's actually what chapter 20 begins to show, and in the tribe of Benjamin. So Benjamin doesn't show up for this little get-together, because they're part of the problem in the eyes of the Israelite. They get unified around killing and not worship. The Levite tells the story, but he doesn't give all the details. He's like, they wanted to kill me, but they killed her instead. Is that really how it went? No. They, they wanted to, yeah, they wanted to know me, but instead we kind of closed the door on the women. That's the story, but there's no, there's no Snapchat footage of that interaction, and so they're just taking it as word. But he is already in that self-protecting, which is what sin will do. I tell my kids this, your sin makes you hide. And so you're going to make yourself look better. You're going to do things that make you feel like you, oh, well, I can't really do that. And I see this when I talk to my own kids. I see it when people talk to me and they call me out for something. The first response is like, yeah, well, they did something. They did something bad. Or I'll say to you, I'll just pick a kid. Uh, I don't, they're not watching. They're at another church in Louisiana this morning, so I can name anybody I want. They won't care. Um, <laughs> So we'll make it Asher. Um, I'll say, hey, Asher, what was that? And he'll go, Ethan, right? Like the first thing out of his mouth is the name of a brother. No kid in this room knows that, do they? The name of a brother. Well, that's what's going on. They wanted to do something terrible. I did something actually way worse, but they wanted to do something terrible. Can you believe it? Now, I want you to see something here. I gave, I think, a clue early, early on in this series. Now, it's been almost three months, and so I doubt you remember even Sermon 1, let alone like Sermon 8, 9, 10. I want you to look at Judges twenty eighteen because they go to the Lord to decide who they will fight. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. So they inquire of the Lord on who they should fight. I'm less concerned at this point in time about God's response. If you go back to Judges chapter 1, verse 1, you will see this. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. So from chapter 1, who shall go up to fight our enemies, to chapter 20, who shall go up to fight our own people? What has happened is an inversion of the role that they should have had. They have become like Canaanites. They have become the enemy that they were supposed to drive out. And now they are treating their own people like that. 
So they ask God who shall go up, and that's exactly like Judges 1.1, but the target is different. Now it's about their own people. Who shall fight against Benjamin? What begins to happen in this are three fights. There are three fights, and Benjamin wins the first, and Benjamin wins the second, and then there's a third. They keep going to the Lord, and they're losing, and they're winning, and they're losing, and they're winning, and finally, Benjamin gets, they get thumped. And so you feel like, well, maybe that's what God wanted. Maybe that was the right thing. So remember in chapter 19, there's just this disregard for those you should care for. It gets in the middle between 19 and 20. Sin creeps in and deceit even creeps in. And now they are all coming together to fight against their own people. That's what they want to do. That's what they think is the right thing to do. And again, you can hear that idea. Perhaps they are handed over and God's just like, you know what? Okay. You have become... You have become just like the people you were supposed to drive out. We're past peace in the land. Like, we're past, like, some judge ruling. Like, this is just giving the condition of the people. The first 16 chapters, really 3 through 16, but the first portion of the book, we get stories of leaders who are put into place to drive out enemies. And now we're giving stories of the spiritual condition, and it's just not. It is not good. Not good. So Benjamin gets thumped. They're not all gone, but many are. Many are. There's just bloodthirst. Well, now at the seam, between 20 and 21, what begins to happen is a little bit of regret. A little bit of regret creeps in. And what we're going to see is an absolute corruption of integrity. Like, that's what's happened. That's what we, now, now it's like, now we're just, now nothing. You can trust nothing that is being said about anyone at any time and in any way. If you look at 21 verses 1 through 3, you're going to get uh, three important things. Verse 1, the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. So they're so mad at Benjamin for what Gibeah did in Benjamin that they're like, we're not marrying them. Never will we do that. So that's the vow. Thing number two, they came to Bethel and sat there till evening and they lifted up their voices and wept. Huh? Why? Verse three, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking? Like, I know why. Do you know why? Like, like they're going to God being like, how did this happen? I don't know how this happened. I'm like, you still have blood on your hands. You wonder how it happened? You might have had to put your weapon down just to cry out to God. And you're wondering how he did this? Like it's his fault that you just went on your own way? And so they've made a vow. We're not going to give our wives over. Then they have all these sad over death. That makes sense. And they're trying to, I guess, make it right, right? Building an altar, sacrificing. And they have to now figure out, well, we don't, we don't want a tribe to not have lineage. So there's this like weird 
We wiped them out. We're sad we wiped them out. And now they need wives. They need wives, but we've vowed not to give them wives. So what do we do? And when I say corruption and integrity, two things begin to happen in this part. Thing number one, they decide that it is a good idea to go to Jabesh Gilead in verses 4 through 14 because they didn't help. They didn't help. So because they didn't help in the fight, we can now take their women, I guess. That's, I guess that's the logic. You didn't help, so we're going to go ahead and just take 400 virgin daughters from Jabesh Gilead. There are 600 people of Benjamin who need a wife. 400 there. So now we have 400, so how many do we have left? 600 minus 400 is how many, kids? 200. 200, thank you very much. So we have 200 people we still need. 200 wives we still need. And this is what begins to happen in 15 through 25, is they start to go, they have compassion on Benjamin because the Lord made a breach. But they get together and they say, well, there must be an inheritance in verse 17. There must be an inheritance for Benjamin so that the tribe may not be blotted out. Yet, we cannot give them wives from our daughters because we've sworn not to. Well, remember how when we were dealing with Jephthah and he swore that he would kill his daughter, or the first thing that came through the door, and we were like, you can go back on a disobedient vow anytime. Like, if it's dishonoring to God, you can just go, that was me, not the Lord. And so, that's that, not to say, because in our flesh we'll go, oh, cool. So if I, you know, I, like, we're, always, we're always trying to find ways to break promises. But they're like stuck. They're like, like, like being right externally is more important than being right internally. Well, we said we couldn't do it, so we can't do it. So look what they begin to scheme. They say this, hey, Verse 19, there's a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east of the highway. Verse 20, and they commanded the people saying, go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. And if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come and complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them else you would now be guilty. Do you hear what they were just saying? We will not give our wives to Benjamin. We're not doing that. But if some people kidnap our wives, or our, our daughters, I'm sorry, not wives. If some people kidnap our daughters, we didn't really give them. I mean, that's like letter of the law through and through, isn't it? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my vow that I'm not going to give any of my daughters to Benjamin. But if my daughters just so happen to be out there and get taken, I'm okay with that. That's what they begin to do. You can hear the corruption of integrity going on all throughout. Let's kill the people who didn't help out. Lord, why did this happen? You know what? We said we wouldn't, we wouldn't give them, so let's have some people take them. And then we can be like, well, I'm, I kept my word. I kept my word. It's okay. Uh, if you're a, a, a woman today, probably about half of us, maybe a few more, something that Judges also does is it, it moves from a woman being someone that Oatniel fought for to someone who now just becomes property to kidnap. Like you, you're following all of these downward trajectories, and we start 
We start with a daughter who goes, I will give, Caleb goes, I'll give my daughter to somebody who goes out and fights. And O'Neill's like, I am in. I am in. And then we have Deborah in chapter 4 and 5. But then we get to Jephthah's daughter. And dad just thinks it's better to kill her. And then we get here. And now it's just, well, I guess we have to keep our word and we want to have a tribe of Benjamin, so let's just kidnap some women and do that. And you just, again, in every way, you just see moral corruption that happens and what it begins to do to invert the condition of the hearts of the men and the people that are in Israel. So this actually doesn't end all that encouragingly Verse 25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you glimmers of hope here, because we know more of the story, don't we? We have more that we can stand on, and we can go corrupt, hideous, ugly, all of those things. We can say all of those things. I want to give you two things. First off, if you look in the book of Judges, this is where it shows up in an English Bible. It does not show up in uh, Hebrew Bible after Judges. Usually it shows up, I think, after Proverbs. Um, but what's the book that comes after Judges in our English Bible? Ruth. Very likely that Ruth happened in the time of the Judges. The time period of Ruth is very likely in those hundreds of years of the judges when people are wandering and life is bad and <clears throat> people flee and people come back. And so we're given this thread of Ruth to realize that even as people are corrupt and hideous and just off to their own, God is working great things to bring about a deliverer. God is still doing work to bring about a deliverer. And the book of Ruth shows us God's preservation of David's line. And if you've been in church a little while, you know who comes from David? Job? Who comes from David? There you go. Jesus comes from David. That God is working even in the time of the judges to bring about a better end and the right king. Why do we go through? I mean, we know that's the case. We go through the whole judges and we're entering into the story and we're way down and it is heavy and ugly and sinful and gross and it can even feel hopeless. You're like, well, glad, God, I'm glad you're working, but I'd prefer a whole bunch of people just don't get murder balled. Like that would be fine. I would prefer that. And so you get to the end and you just have this, there was no king. Everyone would do what was right in his own eyes which is an accusation of the condition of the hearts of the people at the time, but also a push forward to a better day. In the fullest of senses, because we have Saul and David and Solomon and a divided kingdom and prophets and an exile and a return, we have all of those things to happen in the hundreds and hundreds of years after these moments, but then it moves to a child. And that child is born of a virgin, and that child is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And 
And in every way, a judge, a person, a Levite, a husband, and a dad has failed to this point in the book of Judges. We are given a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I'm going to say it this way. Look to the king who will lead you and not hurt you. Look to Jesus. When I teach the book of Judges, I always say, we're going to learn a lot from the judges themselves and the condition of the people, but we should really try and live like no judge, even if there's some noble aspect. Our end game isn't be more like Samson, be more like Shamgar with his ox goad killing you know, a bunch of people. Like That's not what we're looking for. It's a shallow aspiration. What we get all these millennia later is to look back and realize what God was working out and what we get to receive. Let's think of those three aspects of judges we talked about where you have a disregard for those who need it. You have a fight against the wrong enemy and then you have a corruption of integrity. There's three moves that we see what happens when you pursue things at your own end. And what do we have in Jesus when you think of that first movement? You have Jesus saying to a crowd, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We have a Savior who doesn't mistreat, who doesn't harm, who will not only go outside the door in Gibeah, but destroy the ones who are there, who is stronger than any sin, who is better than than any body, and who is going to deliver us from the consequences and weight of eternal punishment. He protects those who hurt. Secondly, and again, because there's no king, everyone did what was right, and we can look back. He fights the true enemy. And you're not the true enemy. Sin is. He destroys sin so you can be right with him. He went up and took the consequences of sin bore them on the cross so that we could live. He doesn't get conflicted and gather his people together to fight his people. It's not his heart. He knows what is right. He does what is right. He fights the true enemy. So often we view in weak moments, we view our own We wonder if God's for us. You might feel that way even this morning. Where you know your sin, you know your corruption, you know what might just be set in you. You know how you've already failed. And you wonder, just a little bit, is God all right with me? Or am I his enemy? New Testament, Apostle Paul would say that we were all objects of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. And so if you are in Christ, you aren't an enemy of God. 
You are beloved. He delights in you. He doesn't mistreat. That's why you get to the end of Judges and you can just feel so uncomfortable. But we don't live in discomfort because we know the Savior. That's you this morning, or maybe you're standing on the outside, you feel like you're looking in, I would just ask you to turn to Jesus. Certain religious traditions kind of train us up to think that if we screw up, we're out, and we have to do enough good to get back in. And so we're always kind of, like we're always like, hey, I feel like I've been pretty good today, so I'm all right. And we look for, like we see in the book of Judges, that momentary peace. Give me 10 years, give me 20 years, just let me feel good for a little while. God is not as concerned about the 20 years, I mean it in this way, as eternity. Eternity is the end game here. Life together with God in a new heaven, in a new earth, where this kind of crap doesn't happen. I could have used many more grosser words, but like, so I went like, you know, G-rated. This kind of stuff, things, evil. God has promised for us a day. For all who are in him, where there is a new heaven and a new earth, and God's dwelling place is with his people. And he will be with them every way, leading them in every way. Because he fought the true enemy. And we can stand redeemed. Thirdly, that corruption of integrity. There is no false way in Jesus. Zero false ways. In fact, for those who tried to live by the letter of the law during his ministry, he had very little sympathy for lawmaking that expressed some demonstration of righteousness. Whereas in this back end of the story in chapter 21, the Israelites feel like they're doing the right thing by keeping their word, by not giving their sons over to marry people of Benjamin or their daughters, to marry the people of Benjamin, what they're actually doing is demonstrating the wickedness of their own heart. I want to look good. I want to be able to say I kept my word, but ultimately I am not that concerned if I do. Jesus has no false way in him. Which is why when we read the word and it assaults our flesh and our, our temptation to be duplicitous in how we act with people, with our friends, our family, our spouse, and we just don't want to fully be who we know, what's really going on. There's no falsehood in him. You get to the end of the book of Judges and you can, you can weep about what you see. But if you know Jesus, you can also worship because you know what's coming and you're experiencing it. If you're only exclusively weeping, then you're like the people in chapter 21 who go, God, I don't, or, you know, I don't know how we did this. I don't know how it got this way. I'm not sure what happened. We don't know what we were thinking. But if you can move to worship, then you have gone through recognizing the hideousness of sin and experiencing the redemption that is available for us in the Lord Jesus.
That's why I love Judges. There are very few books that assault us week after week with sin like Judges does. And at the same time, comfort us if you're in the Lord to go, I am so glad I serve a God who doesn't do that. I'm so glad I serve a God who's still working out faithful people, even in that. And there's always a remnant, isn't there? That's why you get right into Ruth and you go, oh my gosh, how did that happen? You got Ruth, you got Boaz, Naomi's there. You have, you have a family that God is still using to bring about redemption. Which reminds us that even in the darkest days, there is always hope. Always hope. Because we do not define how life is going by what's happening around us. By, by what God is doing. And he's always at work. And he's always preserving. He's always caring. Why? Because ultimately, this is his story he's working out. And he's not going to leave it to us to screw it up. <laughs> like, you know, like he doesn't have to get it back on track. He enters in. He knows what he's doing every time. And you look back at a Ruth and Boaz and you go, huh, how did that happen? But you can stand and look and see the faithfulness of God through it all because we have a better king who will lead us and not hurt us and in fact took the punishment for our wickedness. That's what we get to delight in as we finish Judges. A risen Lord who's our provider, our protector, and our savior.